2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Stepping Into Frame, where we examine TV and film written by or about women. Stepping Into Frame is one of many of the podcasts we have here at the Script Department, and you are more than welcome to subscribe to the Script Department for free. Um, and if you like what you hear, you can like and share or even check out what our global screenwriters are up to at scriptdepartment.net. Um, today, I am joined by Helen. Hello, Helen. Hi. Hi. And we are talking about the first two episodes of the newly launched Lessons in Chemistry, which is um, a teleplay that was written by Lee Eisenberg and Alyssa Karasik, but which is an adaptation of a book written by Bonnie Garmus, I think that's how you pronounce it, and published in 2022. Um, The book, very quickly, features the unconventional female character scientist Elizabeth Sott, who doesn't fit into the mould of a traditional woman of that time, let's say, and we will talk about that more. Um, But it's the early 60s and her all-male team at Hastings Research Institute take a very unscientific view of equality, except for one, Calvin Evans, the lonely, brilliant, Nobel Prize-nominated grudge holder who falls in love with, of all things, her mind. Dun, dun, dun. Is that not a setup for a romantic comedy or is that not a setup for a romantic comedy? Helen, what do you Potentially
3: think? Potentially a setup for a romantic comedy, I think. Um, I, uh, there is, well, I mean, it's it's so hard, isn't it? Because I think we, we're not going to be able to talk about this without giving away spoilers. But how far in advance are we spoiling? Are we spoiling the whole thing? Because both of you, both you and I have read the book. Um, but, of course, the, it's only two episodes out, so it's really difficult not to say too much. It is difficult
2: not to say too much, but I think for the purposes of this, let's try and keep it to the first two episodes and how we how we approach it and well, what we think, and particularly because it is interesting because you've also listened to the audio book and read the book, and I've read the book, so we come at it from a point of having a lot of connections to this in, in different ways, so audio and uh, and the book, and then obviously the TV program. So, what did what were your so kind of kicks off? What were your overarching thoughts about it? In the first two episodes. Uh, I
3: I I liked it. I I do have a bit of a soft spot for anything that's sort of retro or period. I I think it. The only thing about it that perhaps, uh, you know, is a trope that you kind of expect is that it's, it's very nostalgic. It's very uh, heavily romanticized. Everything is perfect. Everything is shiny and new and nothing is, you know, rough around the edges. And I think when you when you think of the 50s and 60s in that kind of, you know, American nuclear family, that's the type of thing that you want to see. So it really played into this false uh, this kind this fiction that it it, it is fiction um, and it's not based on a true story at all and I think the only thing that left me questioning it when I engaged with it as a story in a in a book in book form was you know how true to real experiences was this I mean we know that the 50s and 60s were very uh, discriminatory we know that stem industries science technology engineering math those industries even still today um, can still face quite a lot of discrimination towards women so you know it's not too much to leap to the conclusion that that those events would have happened or very likely happened or did happen to people but collectively I think it's it's difficult to um to pinpoint what do you think?
2: Yeah, and it's one of the things I wanted to talk about actually a little later, but it's good that you've jumped on it now because it does raise uh, a question that was in my mind about the time period in which it was presented um, and the fact that, you know, there obviously was, I mean, it still goes on now, right? The issues, the gender, the empowerment issues that women face, we still have them now and we're much more progressed than we were in the 1950s and 60s. And However, we do also have a number of pieces of film and TV that are set in that time period that look at similar issues with various degrees of strength of looking at those issues or or dominance of looking at those issues. So The Queen's Gambit was one, Marvelous Mrs Maisel, the brilliant film that I think is so good and so underrated, which is Hidden Figures. Um, all sort of set in those and those time periods, all looking at some degree of these same sort of issues. I was wondering whether, you know, is this set in this time period because it's because one of the big thematics is about empowerment and gender issues and, and what have you all through this. Um, is it set in that time period because it's it's cleaner to describe those, those is it is it easier for us to have it at arm's length can we examine these issues more clearly more comfortably when they are at arm's length and they are more probably more pronounced than they are now do you think that's got anything to do with? because there's a lot of it you know and in fact one of the criticisms has been served at this is that actually here we go again we've got another um 1950 60 story talking again about the terrible things that happened to women we've had a lot of that And it needs to be, and in fact, I think one of the newspapers made a comment on the review of these episodes saying you have to do something really different now in this 50s and 60s space in order to break through all that noise of this conversation that we've started to have fairly uh, regularly now. What do you think of it?
3: Well, I I think I've got two points. I mean, the first one is I did think that there was a lot of very on the nose, almost a bit too much, especially in that first episode of this is the world we're in and this is how difficult it is for Elizabeth Sott. But I kind of also feel like you know, women's history, and not just women's history, you know, if we, we kind of think about racial discrimination, and you know, all all of that together, this is part of our history. And the only way that we're going to really move on from it is if we don't shy away from it. And um, I kind of felt, um, actually, what watching it definitely more than, you know, re- listening to or reading the book, that uh, I was disappointed that 70 years on that there are still instances of these discriminations especially in that industry. I I went to the theatre last night and I was listening to a scientist explain how she still holds back because she finds it very difficult in her field to be taken seriously as a woman and I thought you know like this is 70 years on so perhaps these stories should keep getting told again and again until things change because there's still a long way to go we're not we're not clear yet um, but yeah I, I I have also put a lot of thought um, over over the last few months, especially in my own writing, thinking how how it is, you know, there seems to be, you know, when you look at things like Bridgerton and, um, you know, sort of like the Queen's Gambit and things like that, women are faced with this choice. And Elizabeth Zott even says it in, in this uh, these first two episodes that women have to choose. They can have a family and love or they can have a career and they can't have both. And when you think about women in history who have succeeded, it's a very narrow field for those who have had a professional career and who have had a happy, loving, equal marriage with children, which is something that's more contemporary. And um, maybe those are the stories that we need to tease out, like Virginia Woolf. You know, she was creative and had an amazing, um, you know, professional career. Sadly, didn't have children but that wasn't what she wanted. So, you know, for her, maybe not sadly, but, you know, those women out there do exist. So maybe we should stop with, um, you know, this almost caricature trope of there's a strong woman who wants to follow this path, but to do that, she has to have her husband die or doesn't have children or turns away from love to succeed in what she wants to do to fulfil her potential.
2: Yeah, that's certainly true. You don't get many stories where... The woman has a career and a happy family and children and has it all. Essentially, you don't see many stories around that, do you? Which
3: no. Is and what, what does that? And one of the what other- does that say to a contemporary? You know, to you know, to a, an impressionable contemporary young woman growing up? You know, like if 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 you don't see that represented anywhere, and yes, this is fiction, but of course, you know, this these kind of things inspire us, and they they you know, you kind of you just aspire to be you know the things that are around you and if you aren't seeing what you want to achieve then maybe you will always feel like as a you know a a group um as a a demographic that you can't have your cake and eat it when i think you can
2: and and i guess the other part of it is if we put on our screenwriting hats is does it make for drama and conflict doesn't make for good storytelling if you have a happy person with a happy (laughs) life, you know, I mean, we, you know, we love that as individuals, but is that, you know, it it makes for sort of tough storytelling in a way, doesn't it?
3: (laughs) Yeah, but then you, then you, you put them, the hot water is something else, isn't it? The hot water isn't, isn't necessarily maybe the workplace, maybe it's the relationship they have with their parents or their best friend or, You know, maybe they have a a terrible flaw, like they're they're gamblers or they just can't manage their money or they have an eating disorder. You know, like it doesn't, the conflict doesn't always have to be around, you know, whether they can access this or, you know, the choice between. So you can create that hot water in in lots of different pots, I think.
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. And, And that is, and so therefore, there's the, you know, that throws out the challenge to writers, doesn't it? And particularly writers of women's stories is, you know, let's get more of that balanced view, really, and that not one or the other. However, this one set back when it was set back in the fifties and sixties, it was very much a world where it was one or the other, and largely it was not the career. It was you know, the whole idea of the career was was really an exception to the rule. It was more about women as homemakers and carers, and and that was their seen as their primary role. But and so that has its tropes that go with it. And um, Elizabeth as a character really kind of turns those on their head she's a very different woman from that traditionally accepted female role model of that time but one of the things i found that did frustrate me a little bit is just on the trope idea is we also had that trope of um of her as a character she's she doesn't fit the mold but she's also quite awkward in that she's you know if it, you know you have the opening scene of act 1 and there she is sorry of the of, uh, episode 1 and there she is on screen clearly not looking like she's having a great time got and I and there's there's often this association with socially awkward or not very fun with high intelligence it tends to be uh, you know we often have that as a trope which i think it really bugs me and i know it you know i know it serves the the plot in this in this sense, in in this story, but it does bug me that it's like, okay, so she's smart. I mean, she happens to be beautiful as well. So, okay, well, let's make her kind of a bit or- difficult, you know, a, a bit awkward. And it's like, gosh, there's always something, isn't there? You know, there's always some sort of catch about, you know? <laughs> okay, you can be smart, but you can't be pretty. You know, <laughs> or you can be smart, but you've got to be awkward, all- you got to be socially awkward, or or unhappy, or something. You know, it's like, gosh, you know, it's really frustrating. So if we think back I want to touch on genre but I'll come back to that cuz while we're on the character side um how do you, how effectively do you think her character is set up um within these first two episodes and and you know what kind of sense do, do you get of her and I guess potentially compared to how it came across to you perhaps in when you in the audiobook or you know what how did you how you feel about how she's been created
3: um so I think Brie Lawson's done an amazing job because it, the character that she's portraying here the the one that's been created on the page the one that's been created here in in front of us i feel that they're very similar and um it met my expectation uh which was a relief i think because it's such a big part of the story uh especially the book because you know it um it her personality is the book so it needed to come through on the film um and i i think that, the mistake that i think they made in the first episode is is starting at the end because they are two very different people and then in the second episode we even have a third timeline and having and you know this timeline in the first episode we 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 don't come back to until the very end and by then you've almost forgotten that you were talking from a different timeline and then it doesn't appear again in the second one so it's it's really hard to grasp her arc properly in that sense, because it's not a fluid back and forth. So I, I think that was a bit of a mistake. Um, and it just really made it look like a pilot, I think, rather than part of a, a you know, a, a proper series. Um, so I, I I didn't, I think that was a mistake for her character, because you need to see her arc through that. Um, mm. But yeah, she she did meet Do my think- expectations.
2: Do you think that's something that will be resolved through the rest of the series, though? Will that, is that, is that a, just a consequence of only looking at the first couple of episodes, do you think?
3: Um, I mean, I think it's knowing the story doesn't help. But I, I think because it's not. I It, it is kind of. Um, I think you you can see there's a there's a definite sadness in her in when when she's when that in that first episode there's a it bookends with her at the cooking show and it there's there's a definite change in her demeanor and we find out at the end of the second episode that it's likely to have been caused by her husband and there are uh, the death of her husband and there are um boyfriend I should say they never actually got married but um you know. There were other circumstances that lead up to that moment, and I just think it's really hard if you don't know the story to put her arc in context of those two scenes at the beginning of those first episodes. So, yeah, mm.
2: yeah, you're probably right. Well, and it is because you're you're only really seeing a, a little glimpse, aren't you? One of the things that I found, I um, just a little bit odd, uh, was the fact that in the book and i you know it's, this is the interesting thing about reading a book and then watching it isn't it how you create the characters in your mind and then how they how you see them on that on, through somebody else's lens um, i felt in when i read it the character in the book was really strong and a bit sassier and a bit funnier and i, I want to talk about i want to talk about the pilots so i want to come back to that and how everything's what's been stuff in that i want to come back to the genre as well so i'll park those both but um, I felt that what she, what, she, irrespective of the differences and the and the slight strength that she had in I think in the book and stronger sort of sassiness, she still is a character that defies deliberately defies convention and is is incredibly brave. The things that she's done for where she even up to the, the second episode when we see everything she's enjoyed the fact that she's pursuing a PhD, the fact that she is a scientist, the fact that she said. To so Calvin, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have children. She's defied convention on convention on convention. Very, very brave and very strong. But the interesting choice was then when they went swimming and she was too afraid to put her face in the water and blow bubbles. And I thought that really, that really, like, just, dis- that really, like, knocked me a bit. And I was like, oh, that's so not, I don't, that doesn't fit with the character. And I wondered if that was a deliberate decision to soften her and to make her more relatable. Because, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem to go with... Because it's a relatively simple thing, right? Putting your face in the water blowing bubbles. You don't know how to swim. I understand there's this fear about that but you're in a pool. It just seemed to me to be an extremely fearful thing for someone who is really very bold. Do you think that was just creating some character depth or do you think it was a del- deliberate device to make her I, appear more? I, I,
3: I think it at, was a yeah. bit more about giving them an opportunity to soften that frost between um, Elizabeth and Calvin, because up until that point, you know, that neither of them are very romantic, neither of them are very tactile. So how else is it that you can demonstrate that growing feeling than... um, you know, giving them an opportunity to physically interact. And I actually thought his suggestion was very quick off the mark. And I kind of thought, okay, has he always planned? Did he, you know, was this why he suggested doing the bubbles? Because he was hoping it would go wrong and they could move on to that. So uh, it did feel a bit out of place. And um, I, I think when, when they're in the lunchroom and they're, you know, she's, she's, sharing her lunch that whole sequence of that evolving lunchbox getting larger and you know bringing in that extra knife and fork in and things like that and then him sitting next to her you know just just focusing on the unpacking of that lunch told me more about the development of their relationship in an emotional capacity than that kiss in the water did so I, mm. I felt that that scene within the pool was gratuitous and perhaps that's why mm. it felt out of place for you if it, if it's yeah maybe it you know, wasn't something that was yeah. in the book um and part no. of the plan and it just
2: it yeah and just it just didn't seem to go with that kind of a character but mind you you know the the, the truth of it is we have we all have the dark and the light don't we we all have that and and i guess a character like that is going to have those things that are not as they're not all it's all not linear is it that that sort of character journey um so on characters then how did you feel about calvin equally as the love interest
3: yeah i thought again yeah i think so and effective in the sense that he he matched her like they they and i think what i really loved about their growing relationship was that you know the between them that their gender gender as a concept just seemed to be completely irrelevant to them they you know they just couldn't really see it and I, I think that's possibly why the parts that f- felt really on the nose like when um, Elizabeth was sort of saying about gender discrimination and they'd never even heard this term before and I thought well, that is a really contemporary saying and yet she it's almost like she's been using it for years but it, again it's it. It, it didn't fit quite with, like you say, that sassy profile. Um, but, you know, for them, gender doesn't really it doesn't mean the same thing to them as it does to the rest of society. And I think it was quite ironic that their whole relationship was about chemistry, the chemistry that's between them and the chemistry that they're passionate for. And the only part of gender that is relevant to them is the DNA that they're researching. And Zot even says this to Calvin Um, when he asks her what makes them different. And she says, you have a Y chromosome, you know, and that's, you know, so it's almost like it's their minds that are attractive. You could almost call them pansexual in that way because it was, he wasn't interested in her until um, he learned that she was intelligent until she started, you know, talking to him and about some of her theories. And even in the second episode when they're in bed, it's, you know, he's actually really turned on by some of her theories you know, rather than what she's wearing or what she could possibly offer him or vice versa. So, um, yeah, I, I, I I liked that relationship a lot between them
2: yeah and it was nice wasn't it that the that he was obviously attracted to you know, her brain, um, where everybody else that she seemed to come across in her career to date had been influenced by her her looks and, ha- and it had it affected their relationships very very dramatically. so that was really nice. and so you felt that this was a really authentic relationship between the two. I did feel like Calvin in my mind in the book in my mind um was much kind of um, dorkier and a and quite a bit more um, uh, awkward I guess than he was in TV and I think again you know we, we're making him a bit he's a bit more sort of every man for TV I suppose um, but yeah it was, I was that was almost a little bit of a shame for me because I really liked in the book how he was this really kind of aloof Um, intellectual superstar, you know, and it was really well created around this guy who kind of could call all the shots but only on this because he was the guy that got all the funding for the, you know, at the universities and stuff and there was this sort of um, this uh, real rock star quality about him but he didn't play into it in those traditional rock star tropes. He was actually quite reclusive and didn't really want to connect with anybody it was very awkward it was really unusual for a, a male um I guess antagonist in this way um and yeah and I, and I really liked it and I didn't feel that was a strong um through the pilot but I suppose that would be about um uh, attracting a broader audience would you not agree or would you disagree?
3: yeah I think so I th- I think I don't think he was a the wrong person to cast for it because it it made it engaging and you know they 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 really matched each other, I think in terms of how they looked as well as uh you know sort of how they looked compared to everybody else in in the departments and things you know he he looked very different, he was very um you know he exercised for fun and things like that you know and that's that concept came up several times that it was an unheard of thing to do back then. Um, whereas everybody else in the office, you know, seemed to be a little bit, you know, sort of uh, portlier or, or just, um, you know, used to sitting down a bit more. So I, I think, perhaps if if it was the sixties and you were coming up with a a, a a character that fitted that trope, maybe it would look a bit different. But contemporary audience probably more familiar with with that. So yeah, it's it's an interesting. Yeah, question. definitely fit that. But- yeah, it definitely fit that contemporary audience, I think you're really right. And I think they
2: stroke they struck a balance really well between not making him um too incredible that you wouldn't believe he was like he's he's not this, you know, um awkward hottie, you know, for want of a better term. <laughs> you know, like he's a, he was he was very everyman in a way, which I thought was worked well. And I think you're right. I thought the two of them were very, very well matched um as a pair. So that worked particularly well, I thought. I think it's just that when you you know, create it in your head you've got that freedom to kind of really push into some of those different kind of depictions and it may have just been my interpretation but it's uh yeah interesting to consider so let's zip back for a second to the pilot because your comments about um how you felt the pilot was constructed were quite interesting so did you talk to us a little bit more about that about how you felt was so the first episode traditionally being the pilot episode has to do some things, has some structural jobs to do, which we'll talk about. How did you, what was your sort of overarching feeling of it as a pilot episode?
3: I think if, if it had been a pilot episode, we hadn't seen episode two, or there'd been a week gone by before we watched episode two, I think it might have settled better. But I, I did, it just felt like it was really trying, like really trying to set the scene, to set the characters up, to set all these story threads going. Um, and I I think it it just felt a bit too much, a bit kind of, here, look at this, here, look at this, here, look at this, rather than just us enjoying and working out and picking out the subtext and understanding the nuances between those relationships. There was a lot of telling us, you know, what everyone thought of Calvin and, um, and how there was sexual discrimination here and how this woman was paid to wear, you know, show more flesh and, you know, things like that. And I, I kind of, I don't know if you needed, you know, that instance with the the the, uh, Miss Hastings show uh, pageant. I don't think you needed the woman on stage sort of going through how erotically she would make a dessert for her husband, her fictional husband, versus the, you know, the woman saying how someone paid her to wear less clothes. I think one or the other would have been enough, but, you know, to, to have two in there was a bit like, yeah, we get it. You know, we get it and we know that she's not comfortable. We can see that because of what she's wearing and the way that she's behaving. And, the, you know, we know how she felt before she got here. So it just kind of felt repetitive um, so I think that's, and I, I guess in a pilot, there's, there was so much layering and perhaps it was just one layer too much for me, I think. Mm.
2: And that's a challenge, isn't it? Because when we write pilot scripts, the whole challenge for the writer is to create a world, is to create a piece that sells to producers and commissioners the idea of, This is the world that we are representing. And here you can see the strings of the stories that we're going to develop out into the series, whether that be a six part or an eight part or whatever, a continuing drama, whatever it is. Um, And so it's quite the challenge for a screenwriter to be able to create that sense of world and create that sense of story because quite often the pilot episode that is traditionally used as a here's what we want to develop, would you please greenlight this, then often because of budget implications becomes yes it's greenlit that's going to be episode 1 and then you go okay so now you start on episode 2 so it, you know there's a real balancing act that you have to do as a writer to say okay I want to create a sense of the world and give people who are going to buy this series a view into the future and they can get excited about the ideas but then equally once it's greenlit and it's and it's aired and and, and produced that people the audience won't feel like you clearly felt where it was this is sort of it felt a bit stuffed of story didn't it like it was quite it was yeah, sort of yeah. heaving a bit wasn't it
3: <laughs> yeah I, know. I think that that last scene as well where she burns a lasagna and she talks about how you know things don't always go as planned and stuff and I don't think you knew enough about her in the future and what had happened to her to really take on board what she was saying, especially as you, you, where you were leaving the story, then I kind of thought, well, this is a bit. This is very like this is a very heavy ending for you know. It she still got to work with him, and no, it's not worked out how she planned. Like the lasagna didn't work out how she planned, but it's not this massive disaster that is on her face. So it just didn't. Those two didn't. That ending of the the present and the future. They didn't marry for me. Um, I don't know how you feel about yeah. that. No, I do agree. And I, I think, you know, it's taking an excerpt from where it where we
2: go to and, and with a you know a bit of a well, this is what's going to happen in the future. Because you've got two parts of a story that are fairly dramatically there's a there's a big shift there. So you you know, you start with a story of a woman who's a scientist and is in a very scientific world and all of a sudden she's catapulted into the world of a TV show. And it comes from all this tragedy and all this difficulty that's happened beforehand. So there's really there's a lot of shift. And so to try and create that two worlds of where she because it is such a big shift from where she comes and from where she ends up, and then all the complexity of the world within that she ends up, it's hard to do, I think, in in one or clearly it's hard to do in, in one episode. And then the the result of that is just as you'd mentioned, the second episode feels quite Quite a jolt from the first episode because there isn't the continuity around the TV series at the, the, the TV show at the beginning of the first episode. It's it's not mentioned at all in the second episode, is it? And no, and we so we're we like, actually start well, in the past, fit? don't
3: we? <laughs> so it's, yeah, that's yeah.
2: right. We go back. Yeah, 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 and we don't get a sense. And there's nothing other than her her cooking um, interest. There's nothing that really can connect can, can Give us a view into. Oh, I see. I think I know where that's going. I think I can see a path for that. Um, yeah, which is an unusual choice. So I don't know. Maybe it was that the pilot episode became the first episode. Maybe that's that explains it. But it's it's a really fascinating challenge, I think, for screenwriters to consider um, when you're writing a TV pilot. How do you strike that balance between it being a standalone episode that would happily become episode one or an a, and a and a convincing pilot that is um, enough to make somebody want to buy a series.
3: Mm, yeah, it, it, I agree. It's such a challenge and it would be really interesting to see if anybody else thought the same thing as well about yeah, the
2: pilot. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And I wonder if by the end of the series you look back and you think, oh, yeah, okay, that makes total sense. You know, perhaps into well, we're going into a series, sorry, going to episode three next how that then starts to link and if those you'd expect that those linkages will happen more strongly episode three um but yeah it will be interesting to see um question for you around genre of this piece it's a funny one because the book has been widely acclaimed as this is because Mm. the book it must be said has been a real blockbuster you know it really has been such a, a, a fabulous piece that so many people have loved, and over the last year, sort of last year really when it came out into this year, it's been on all the bookshelves in all the in all the bookstores. Um, people talking about it a lot. It's really hit something a, a real wave of of interest as a book. Um, but it's it, so it's this acclaimed tale of female disempowerment, um, and this idea of this culinary tweak creates this as a revenge comedy. That's how the book is positioned. Um, two episodes in. How do you think it stacks against the idea of a revenge comedy from a genre point of view or do you think the TV dramatization has shifted it and if so what's the shift do you think
3: Yeah I don't I don't at the moment it doesn't it's not presenting like a revenge comedy it's setting up the potential for it but um I I mean I can't speak for what whether or not we'll get to that revenge moment in episode 3 or 4 I imagine at the pacing that it's going, it's probably going to be episode four that we get the real change of, actually, I'm going to, you know, do something about this. So, and that feels quite late to be sort of saying, you know, this this TV series is about, I feel like that should be there from the beginning. So um, it, at the moment, it's presenting as, as not much of a comedy. Um, and But I mean, there, there is comedy in there. And I kind of feel... Unlike the book, because we had a bit more of her, mon- like her inner monologue, a bit more of an understanding of her character, I feel like the comedy is actually coming in the clash, you know, like when, when she's on stage and he's set asking her a question about where would you go on your honeymoon? Well, I'm not going to get married.
1: Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, uh-huh, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void web prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: And then she's just reiterating, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to get married. And it's funny that she was going to do a science experiment as her talent... you know, little things like that, Um, and she calls the do- dog six thirty. You know, there's there's comedy in that, but we're laugh. I feel like we're laughing at her, whereas in the book, I feel like we were laughing with her because she was um, a bit more self aware about you know. Whereas in in the TV show, they've kind of almost given her this trope of she doesn't realize how awkward she is. Um, What do you think? Do you think that?
2: Yeah, I think she's. I think she's definitely there's there's something different from the book in the in the humor side um, and i i was you know i explained it to myself as saying assassiness um but that's probably not articulating it properly um but i felt in the book there was a witty a witty sharpness to her that is is not coming through yet in the first couple of episodes and and i agree with you on it doesn't feel like a revenge comedy at all it doesn't feel like a comedy to be honest it feels more like a rom com, a dramatic rom com, if that's some weird <laughs> sub genre. <laughs> but it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of drama because you look, you know, you look at her, the bits that we've, where we've reflected back into her history and what's happened. It's, ter- it's been terrible, it's been quite traumatic, actually. You know, like the, the sort of sexual um, harassment that she's faced, the violence, you know, that what happens to her with her PhD and the, you know, getting thrown out of courses. And you know, she's had a really terrible time. And nobody's really taken her seriously. So it's been it's been quite a traumatic part. We've now got this moment of we had this moment of romance that blossomed. So we think, oh, okay, this goes into a bit more of a sort of rom-commy feel. Could be, could be. It doesn't quite get there either. And now Calvin's gone. It's like, what's gonna happen from a genre point of view? It doesn't feel quite set for me. And I just don't quite buy that she's got the humour as a character. It's not pulling through the way it did in the book for me and so I think you're right about the fact that then we don't necessarily laugh with her like the moment where they're having the romantic candlelit dinner and she says to Calvin you know this open flame is a is a safety risk you know and it's like well and, and that that didn't land as a gag you know that that wasn't funny that was a bit like oh for god's sake it's a romantic dinner you know it's a little bit candle you know lighten up <laughs> like it was it was sort of it so it didn't quite land in that in that humor way so that'll be interesting to see how it how it um articulates mm. into progressive episodes i think
3: yeah and because i I couldn't help especially when when i when it opened the first episode opened i couldn't help comparing it to uh the hbo series julia that came out last year i think that had sarah lancashire in that was based on the um the house the, the the chef the tv chef julia child um so and that was another 1950s kind of housewife come cooking show thing and she was unconventional and honest and you know had disregard for the expectations of the men and you know and things like that. And I I think I kind of thought actually like as a book, you know, lessons in chemistry was great, probably because it was very character driven and it was very character centered. Um but I I I felt like the comparison between these two shows was one is about an exceptional person and the other is just about a regular woman. And I think it left me wondering well, what is more inspiring to watch? You know, is it, is it are you able to relate more to someone who is a kind of slightly awkward, socially awkward uh, genius? or someone who is just a socially awkward normal person like Bridget Jones or something, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's something that I think like Disney has really picked up on with Encanto, this kind of Spielberg trait of ordinary people in extraordinary situations. And you kind of get that with the marvellous Miss Maisel. Um, and it is extremely interesting to hear about extraordinary people but then, you know, that that kind of, it's it's hard to relate to, like, the Queen's Gambit. She was an extraordinary woman with an extraordinary talent. But it's you could look at her in awe, but you couldn't necessarily relate to her, apart from maybe the fact that you've also experienced sexual discrimination. So um, it, it, I think we mentioned it earlier, it's very difficult. It's frustrating to kind of exist beyond social confines if you're extraordinary, but it's also frustrating to exist beyond social confines if you're not extraordinary. And, I, yeah, I find yeah. it more compelling to watch a regular woman in an extraordinary situation than the other way around.
2: Yes, it really raises a question, doesn't it, about the, yeah, the, the extraordinariness of the character and, and whether that does, in fact, push us away from from us and make them, yeah, well, they're definitely less relatable, aren't they? but they just are because they are extraordinary by the very nature of who they are they're not not usual um and and i think that's probably what i'm getting at with some of my some of the things don't get me wrong i really actually enjoyed both um episodes and i loved the book and i'm really looking forward to how it pans out but in terms of the articulation on screen and the character on screen elizabeth was just as it was a little flatter than she was for me in the book and I don't know whether that's my mind then picturing her a different way and giving her that sassiness in my mind or whether that's that I feel like it's the book I feel like the humor comes out a bit more but that's the thing isn't it you have a an awkward character who is exceptional who's not got a lot of traits that are massively relatable really it's a real challenge for uh, again for a writer and a you know and and producers putting on a show with that as your protagonist, male or female, it's a real challenge. So um, it'll be really interesting to see how they manage to keep those connection points. Which is, I guess, why I wondered about that little connection point that wasn't in the book about the swim, the swim, the um, and but I think you're. Um, your um, understanding of it makes a lot of sense. But I I think perhaps there are moments in there that they're trying to put, it's it's kind of saved the cat in a different way, Mm -hmm. isn't it? It's like yeah. soften the cat. <laughs> Make the cat more <laughs> like the cat. Yeah. <laughs> Make the strange cat more <laughs> it's like One of those bald cats, you know, that like mm. uh, anyway, yeah. So <laughs> and, okay, enough of the cat. No, sorry about that. Um, but yeah, it's a, it is that thing though, isn't it? And and as writers, mm. we have to grapple with that. It's like we want to create complex characters. We want to create characters that are interesting and unusual. And so unusual people are extreme, I mean you know, genius is unusual so that's great tick tick but then how do you make sure that they're still relatable and still identify and we still we still root for them we still want them to win you know and that's the core thing isn't it we want to be on Elizabeth's side we want her to win and and I I think we do but it's you know it could go it could have gone either way I think
3: Yeah, it really could have gone either way. And something I'm hoping they're not going to trample on over the the remaining episodes is the relationship that she develops with um, Fran Frask, who's the head of personnel. Um, And they have a little bit of a set too uh, over her attending the pageant. And then um, a bit later when she, in episode two, when she wants to be removed from um, Calvin's uh, lab and she refuses. And I, I, I won't give away any spoilers, but it's it develops into a really interesting relationship. But I think what I'm I'm enjoying watching unfold at the moment, and I particularly enjoyed about episode two, was that Elizabeth is just so unaware of her gender that she's not as savvy as her female colleagues of navigating this masculine world and possibly got her into the situation uh, in, that we see in the flashback at the beginning of um, the second episode, not to say, of course, that it was her fault, but the naivety of, you know, being uh, perhaps, this is going to sound really hard, but giving those signals of, you know, this is what I want to, and of course, it being misinterpreted. Of course, that situation was not about her, um, her behaviour being misinterpreted. But perhaps if she was more self-aware of her gender, there would be a bit more caution about how she is in a room in that situation and it still might have ended up in the same way but uh, frask is really good at throwing it back at her and saying how you think the rest of us are stupid but actually it's you that's stupid and I really like that dynamic and I I really hope they don't trample on that as it progresses because it it does progress in the book um and I yeah I just I think uh I think that Frasque was better at adapting to the world and that is br- creates this brilliant tension between them yeah
2: yeah she's a real um a real reflection like a real mirror should I say oh well no it's not a mirror mm. is it because she's the opposite really isn't she she's she's very smart and very in how she ma- manipulates or oh, not manipulates in how she negotiates the political climate in which she lives she's a real master of that and yeah I I think you're absolutely she's a terrific character in the book from that point of view she's really strong and has a really important role in that reflection for Elizabeth of well this is kind of what you could be doing and this is what you should be doing to kind of negotiate around these things that you're bumping into and then you know so it that yeah that's a really good question I wonder how that's going to
3: yeah pan out keep an eye on that one as it Keep As it eye. goes through,
2: yeah, exactly, exactly. the other one who's the other character who's a little bit different um is Harriet Sloan, so she is the neighbor character, and in the book she's um fairly uh. Fairly nosy neighboury, I think it's fair to say. I think she's fairly linear in that respect. She's lovely, don't get me wrong; she's a lovely character, but she's not at all um, sort of really complicated or or there's not a great deal of depth to her story. But Harriet's in um, the TV version is quite different. Um, what were your thoughts mm. on her?
3: I, I kind of wondered whether they were they gave her a story thread um why they gave her a story thread like they did because in the book from what i remember there isn't this sort of storyline of the highway being you know threatening to go through the the neighborhood and it in a way i think perhaps that's another aspect of the pilot that spoiled it for me was it was another way of saying i have a voice and i'm a woman but not just that i'm a black woman i'm a minority in this community and i am articulate i am more intelligent than the men that are in this room and yet i'm being ignored and i think it to me it landed in a way that because there were so many other layers i kind of thought like where is this going what like is this another pushback of uh, you know this is extra discrimination and of course it's important to to reflect those uh, storylines but I don't you know it wasn't in the book, so you, it's kind of you know was was this an exercise in bringing some diversity into what otherwise would have been a nearly all white cast?
2: Mm. it's It's a great point, and I think it's certainly worth considering because it does feel there isn't at this stage a particularly strong narrative reason why her character is as she is she's definitely been built in a very different way and that you know from an adversity point of view absolutely from uh challenging the societal norms absolutely but she's almost in a way um, um a mini elizabeth in a way you know she's another woman who it really it can't you know it's contravenes, we'll use that, um, all of the kind of expected behaviours of a woman of that time. And so you think, okay, do we really need that? Do we need these two big um, sort of, you know, uh, tropes turned on the head or is is one enough? Or is it, as I have read a little bit, does it come across as a little bit heavy handed where we're really sort of Loading up the the issues around the kind of you know the female empowerment issues that you know is do we need them both maybe we do maybe again we'll see as the as the series rolls out whether this new narrative thread that's been built in actually then weaves into the story in a mm, way that comes that back makes it yeah
3: it yeah comes and back I, and I just sense. kind of I feel like you know that that why hasn't why why not be inspired by the book to create a TV show that centers around the neighbor and that story, you know, because it, it can still encapture quite a lot of it. Why Why did we have to tag it on? Why couldn't she have her own show? You know, why Why wasn't, if this story is interesting and important to tell, why have they been relegated to the sea story, you know? then Yeah, and, that, that and stands on its own. Yeah,
2: it it feels like it's strong, and I mean, it's really it's she's great. I really love her, and it's like, God, this yeah, character yeah. is great. But you think, well, okay, yeah, what, why, what service does she, you know, is is her mm-hmm. character to the narrative driving the narrative for yeah. anyway? What, we shall what see. What do
3: you want the audience to know? You know. Yeah. yeah. Or, or how is she then building on the story into
2: the future? But again, mm. perhaps there's a perhaps this sea story gets built out and it becomes something that perhaps in a few episodes we go, Oh, of course. Oh well so thank goodness she was there, because then this wouldn't have
0: happened.
2: <laughs> you know, who knows? <laughs> we'll see. Now we have to talk uh for a moment, if we can, about six thirty, the dog. Um this has been such a moment of I think the most contention since the uh, since this series has launched, the most conversation has been around six thirty. The dog, because it's very different to, well, a from the book. um Six thirty is as as really people just love him, and and it's taken kind of the world by storm a bit. There's like. Instagram accounts on 630 and there's all these groups that talk about it's kind of interesting he's this little obsessive community around around 630 the dog which is fine because he's a great dog in the book he's really good however in the in the TV show he's much less of a character um he is uh so in the book 630 is very intuitive um Elizabeth has taught him a vocabulary Some people consider him to be a talking dog. He's not exactly a talking dog, but he does have a thinking dog. I think is how they describe him, and he certainly has. You know, understands a lot, and he's very much a character in his own right. Um, So far, he's much softer. He's sort of a bit of a bit part. He's sort of there, but he's not sort of doing much other than, of course, um, when um, Calvin takes him on his walk. uh, That is when. Calvin meets his demise and so he has a purpose from that point of view um how did you feel I mean it's tough isn't it because actually in the book he almost teeters on magic realism the character so how do you convert that kind of character into the screen it's a big challenge um yeah what did you think of him in the tv series
3: I from what I remember of the book I think she was much more reluctant to sort of adopt him, wasn't she? Didn't he come back after a couple of nights um, and eventually she kind of, you know, took him in as a companion and then found that she felt safer having this companion around with her, which plays into um, what happened to her uh, when she was studying for her Ph.D.? um and it's not until calvin comes along that she kind of you know allows him into that space and you know the that
1: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
3: lucky in line at the deli i guess Ah ha in my
1: dentist's office More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Relationship between her and the dog is not replaced by her and Calvin, but there's more of an equal sort of I'll let you in type thing it's a bit like with 6 six thirty. you know she, it took her a while to let him in the door and it's the same thing with Calvin um, and you don't get that at all in in this TV show um, but I, I have to confess I don't remember I mean I listened to the book and a year ago when it came out when it as soon as it came out I'd listened to it and I'd forgotten all of the um the bat story about how he had or not the bat story but all the the story about how she you know taught him words and vice versa the dog helping teach language to um like, I shan't say anymore, <laughs> otherwise I'm going to swear. But <laughs> I know you like know, doing that too. Nearly, I topic. nearly got carried away. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so there's this is a full circle moment going on there. But, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I'd, I'd forgotten about it. And I, I kind of thought, well, like, you know, actually, maybe maybe then, if you strip back his involvement in Zot's life, in Elizabeth Zot's life, was that needed? And I can also imagine it's quite difficult concept and idea to to conceive in film and perhaps it is only best happening in books because the the amount of dog training you would need and you know to to convey that in a in a really conceitful way like could you believe that it was happening um so you know maybe that this was an example of a character who's not pulling their weight and therefore they get stripped back or taken out um Yeah,
2: yeah it's a yeah absolutely could you imagine being handed that book and say, someone saying, please write a screenplay adaptation going, oh, for God's sake, <laughs> magic realism <laughs> dog. How on earth am I going to do this? Because, you oh, know, you know how, do you, how do you, <laughs> exactly? But, you know, and it's just, it's a major pain as a, from a screenwriting point of view, it is a massive issue to have to add that level of complexity into the characterization of a, you know, of a, I was going to say an inanimate <laughs> object, it was not inanimate, but, you know, like a, a non-speaking creature it's it's a really big ask, and the and being able to pull it off in an in an authentic and believable way is a whole other thing so it's one thing to write it it's another to be able to produce it that it looks effective that it doesn't look ridiculous and people don't start to take the mickey out of it so it's a really tough one so I kind of think in a way it's probably the choice I would have made I probably would have pulled it pulled him back as well as a, as a character. However, there is one point, and I don't know if it's me sort of me, my kind of hyper memorising of, of a moment that maybe I've made it into a bigger thing than it is, but I do recall from the book that one of the important points about 6.30 is that um, Elizabeth's um, sort of uh, extreme sort of caution and doing things correctly and her very sort of structured and absolute um, frame of mind Um, She was the one that convinced Calvin to put, because Calvin used to go running with the dog without a lead and she convinced him that it was safer for the dog and him if he had the dog on a lead and he was not happy about that, but he did it. But actually it was the moment that when when they went for a run that fateful morning and the dog ran one way and he pulled the lead and he slipped on the ice, which is what caused him to be hit by the car or the truck or whatever it was. And the interesting part about that was then Elizabeth, without going too many spoilers, but, but they haven't put it in so it's not really a spoiler, um, Feels an enormous guilt about that. And so that's missing. That whole plot point is missing. And I felt that was a really important plot point because the, the conflict, uh, the internal conflict she has over the loss of Calvin and her, her idea that she was in some way partly responsible... Is something that I remember from the book as being quite a poignant. Thing, so I don't know whether maybe it's something they'll put in and should, then and it'll come up, but it certainly wasn't there up to that moment. There wasn't there was no discussion pre about that. There was no I couldn't or I, unless I missed it completely, which I may have. Um, there was no discussion about that. You should put this on the dog kind of thing, and so yeah, not that I remember. Did I did I miss it? Did you see that? And I no, I, it, I think
3: you're right. I, I do think you're entirely right. <laughs> I, I I and I kind of also felt about that scene that was, there, you know, usually when the main character is about to die, there's kind of a, you know, they're either super lovey or they have a massive argument. There's, there's something really memorable about the way that they say goodbye and, or they, they don't, or they don't get to say goodbye. And there, there, it was just a, such a normal parting of, I'll see you in a minute, I'm just going for a run. And it was very blasé. And I kind of, I've been thinking about that and why that has been sticking with me. And perhaps if that tension had been around, you need to take the lead. Okay, fine, I'll take the lead, you know, and then it was the lead, then that would really set that up. But then I kind of thought, well, okay, you could get away with leaving that out, perhaps if we sort of, I don't know if we'd seen her become more dependent on him being near her or being around, because she was so okay with just being single and living on her own and she made it very clear she didn't have any intentions of getting married and she had no kind of problem with that like she, it's not like she was going I'm not going to get married but I really wish I could you know because I love being in love but or I'm lonely there was none of that so like you kind of feel a bit with it, Evans dying that is she like what yes of course they were in a relationship but they never said they were in love they they may have talked about perhaps. Would they have children in the future? No. And they work together. But actually, what what's the pull? Where Where is that kind of cutting heartache I feel is missing from the end of that episode?
2: Mm, good point, because she was very deliberate, when, wasn't she, when they got together saying, look, you know, if we're going to be together, you need to understand. I don't want to get married. I don't want to have children. She was very like. You know, particular about this and saying you can't, we can't be together unless you're totally okay with that. So, in a way, it was quite. It is quite. Um, yeah, it's it's not particularly. The, yeah, I didn't want to say that, but yeah, <laughs> I was thinking, is there something? Else? But it, it's cold, isn't it? And the, and there's a there's a lack of that emotional bond there, although it ov- there obviously was because we saw it build in in both of those um, episodes. So maybe they just maybe it doesn't serve the TV. Um, narrative if they've made some shifts to it you know perhaps they can perhaps it doesn't serve a purpose what purpose would it be for her to feel regret what would that do to the narrative what would that do to her character would that drive would that further drive does she need that does she need that guilt to further drive her decision making possibly not so maybe it's i don't know maybe it's an it, it doesn't it's not needed maybe it was just another i don't know we'll see on all these, we'll see. So one last question for you on adaptations as a thing because adaptations are quite tricky, aren't they? We, we talk about adaptations all the time, don't we? We're often talking about adaptations of films. Um, They're the challenging because particularly with a book like this where it's been so well received as a book and it has such a fan base as a book um balancing fan expectations and creative license just as we've been talking about here well this wasn't in the book i mean so this was in the film was in the book how dare they um how do you think uh lessons in chemistry manages to balance so far from what we've seen this concept of appealing equally to fans of the book and new audiences
3: uh, i well i think the first off the the era is leans into it being adapted quite easily because everybody will watch a 1950s nostalgic film tv series and it's really hard to not like it because it's just eye candy everywhere isn't it who doesn't want to live in this sort of slightly utopian society where everything is beautiful and clean um and just retro apart from all the discrimination and all of that but um it, it it's a very idealized uh remembering of history um and so i think that that is interesting to a, an audience and um i'm adapting books i think it's just going to get more and more uh, so if you, we're just going to see more and more of it, especially self-published books. I think that there's there's probably a huge market out there of people secretly reading all these self-published books and thinking, can I adapt that to a film? And it, I think like with 6.30, 6.30 is a really prime example of a reason why perhaps some things don't work because in a book you need to have that omniscient narrative to explain it. And I suppose if I was looking at it maybe from a script editing point of view, knowing the book, I would say, OK, well, what is it? What is the charm about 630? What is it that he does bring to the character? You know, does he bring that sense of protection? Is it a process of letting go of one character to embrace another one? And is it, you know, the, what does that reluctance in both engaging with either Calvin or 630 mean to the main character? And I don't feel that they've utilized 6:30 in the way that they could have done, like they did in the book. But and I think that that is just because they've they've overlooked what 6:30 brings. Um, Mm. They, you know, because I guess he takes up so much of the narrative, doesn't he? In in a in a in that book, yeah. That it might be quite difficult to see the wood through the trees there. Yeah um, and so and what, he becomes yeah. such
2: a bigger character later as well like we you know yeah. no spoilers into where where it goes but his character becomes even more important um over time and you know in in a lot of different ways so yeah it's i'll be interested to see how that pans out as um as the the narrative progresses and whether you know is it that they are are they kind of I know it sounds bizarre mm-hmm. but if you look at like a balance of characters we've got this Harriet Sloane's come up in like much much more complicated, much more built out from the book. Six um, Thirty's been depleted. Is there, you know, are we going to see a shift there? Is is Harriet Sloan going to come in to take some of the role that that Six Thirty played, potentially
3: in potentially. the future
2: in the family?
3: So hard to That's speculate without one. giving away the plot. <laughs> I, know. Um, I, know. But I know, I know. Yeah, I
2: don't I know.
3: It is. It is really. I, I think adapting books is really challenging because. They are such different mediums. They really are totally different mediums. In the freedom that you have in an, in a narrative, is seventy to one hundred and ten thousand words compared to what you have in a script and what you can do with budget constraints and you know all of that. It I think, I think adapting a book is not for the faint-hearted and doing it right means leaning into what what is it the characteristics of the book and the characters that make it so appealing and such a you know have such a wide fan base you know the the character was a, elizabeth Zott was a big part of this book and they've managed to successfully translate some of it although not all of it as we've discussed um but yeah i, I think i think it's i think it's tough gig i don't think i would
2: yeah. ever even try and no. adapt a book
3: <laughs> No,
2: I'm, I'm working with a group of screenwriters at the moment who are writing TV pilots and one of them is adapting a book that he has written. He's doing the adaptation. And I've been working with him for about six, we nearly nearly two months in just stripping it back. And it's just, and every time I talk to him, it's just he's like, I've ripped this out and I've ripped this out, I've ripped this out, and I'm like, keep going, <laughs> keep going. You know, it's really hard. Like you've got to get to the core, the very core of this of the narrative, the absolute core, and you've got to pull the characters right back to the core as well. So you've got to kind of, you know, that phrase that we have about kill your darlings, about you know, killing off the things that you you bring into your screenplays. You just love an idea or you love a character, and sometimes you've got to get rid of them because they don't serve it. This is like, you know, assassinate your darlings continuously. You know, it's just like ripping chunks and chunks and chunks of the book out. It's it's kind of heartbreaking because, you you know, I'm I'm watching him go. Is this really story? He's exhausted, and it's um it is exhausting. So you know, but it's a fascinating process. I think if you can get through, um, and write a novel and then adapt it to a screenplay, that's quite something in terms of
3: a skill yeah. suite. So it's um yeah but not for the faint-hearted you're absolutely right no I think you know if you 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 could take the synopsis couldn't you and use that almost like a beat sheet and re just rewrite rather than you know copy and paste and cut and paste you know completely rewrite but just based around the action of of your book um but even then you know there's still going to be elements that need to come out yeah yeah Mm -hmm. that's exactly what he did he went back and wrote the
2: synopsis and it's and it does a big chunk of the work for you because you've essentially got a page or you know page or yeah a page essentially of beats but still you know you come it's that kill your darlings things it's like oh but that that moment where she does this or this character does that or so i really love that It's like okay yeah well you know it has to go sorry (laughs) there's a better way of doing it visually you have to chop it you know so it's it's you have to be very cutting but um, yeah fascinating process I think and you're right at the moment it's it's very much a thing isn't it and a lot of producers are now picking up um, published works published books and turning them into screenplays it is a big it's and it's great because from a writer's point of view um, you know we are screenwriters but if you're a novel writer there's a really interesting way in to have your work made into a film is is by writing a really good uh, book that you uh, would work very well on in tv or film so definite opportunity so my very final question for you Helen is as always what can we take away as screenwriters from the two episodes you have seen
3: Mm. I think layering is a big thing for me at the moment it's where I'm really focusing on in my editing um and just applying layers but I think there's a lesson to be learned here about balance and when to stop how many layers have you got how many threads have you started to pull at? um and yeah I think I think that's what I really took away from watching the pilot episode especially and comparing the, the first episode with the second episode you can tell that that layering has been pulled back so I'm, I mean, I have to confess, I've already watched both of these episodes three times um, just because I really wanted to understand and make sure that what I was saying about that layering wasn't just an off the cuff. Now, well, there's far too much gratuitous discrimination in here. Um, but I would be tempted to go back and rewatch them both one more time just to see if I can really pick out um, those layers. And that makes me sound like I have an enormous amount of time, but I'm, I'm multitasking, I promise. Nothing better to do. No, it shows your commitment <laughs> to the script department
2: and your screenwriting <laughs> career and your commentary, which is excellent. And that's why we love it, Helen. And that's why we ha- love having you on this show. So, on that point, a perfect moment to end. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was really lovely to oh, chat about me. the show. I'm going to go back and watch it again, too, if it's any consolation. Um, just to make you feel better for no other reason. Um, It was great to have you join us. Thank you to everyone who listened. And if you like what you've heard, as we mentioned at the start, please feel free to like, share, or subscribe to the script Department. We love having you. And we'll be back very soon with another episode of Stepping Into Frame. Thank you very much. See you later.